Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Oral arguments begin in a D.C. court on former President Trump's federal election case. What are Trump's lawyers arguing? We have the latest updates. House Republicans are challenging the testimony of a key January 6th witness. Find out what part of her testimony on former President Trump they're calling out and what action they're taking. Frigid and snowy winter weather could make participating in the Iowa caucuses challenging for some. We hear from a political science professor about how that could affect voters. A caravan of thousands of migrants has resumed its march to the U.S. border after they say a promise from the Mexican government was broken. Bolts missing from the panel blown from a Boeing MAX 9 mid-flight last week. Federal investigators are wondering if they were ever in the, there in the first place. New insight into what went wrong with the Alaska Airlines flight last week. And Shen Yun Performing Arts wraps up their shows in San Francisco. To find out more about the show theatergoers describe as very powerful. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Former President Trump appearing in a Washington, D.C. courtroom today. A three-judge panel is hearing arguments about whether Trump is immune from prosecution for actions he took after the 2020 election. Trump entered the courtroom just before the oral arguments began. His lawyers argued that the actions mentioned in the indictment were part of Trump's official duties as the president. He said charging a president for his official conduct opens a Pandora's box from which the nation might never recover. Trump's attorney concluded by indicating that if Trump loses the legal battle, he will seek review by the full D.C. circuit or ask the Supreme Court to step in. The special counsel team then opened by claiming that the president does not enjoy immunity after leaving office. This is the second major appeal of the DOJ's prosecution of Trump in D.C. The former president faces four felony charges in the federal election case brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Those include conspiring to defraud the United States and to obstruct an official proceeding. Trump has pleaded not guilty. The judge presiding over Trump's federal election case was apparently the latest victim of a swatting incident. That's when a fake 911 call is made, sending emergency crews and possibly SWAT teams to someone's address. Police responded Sunday to an emergency call claiming a shooting occurred at Judge Tanya Chatkin's D.C. residence. Investigating officers found an unidentified person there who said she was not injured and no one was in the home. Officers found nothing at the location. This is just the latest in a rash of swatting incidents against politicians like Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene and Maine Secretary of State Shenna Bellows. There have also been incidents involving celebrities like Tom Cruise and Miley Cyrus. A surprise filing accuses the Fulton County DA and a special prosecutor of having an improper relationship. The two are handling former President Trump's Georgia election trial. The accusation comes from co-defendant Michael Roman, who seeks to have his indictment dismissed. The document alleges a romantic relationship between Willis and prosecutor Nathan Wade, who is a private attorney. It says Willis contracted Wade without the required approval by the county. The 127-page filing also alleges the pair profited significantly from this prosecution at the expense of taxpayers. 
The filing says Wade and the DA took lavish vacations and he paid for them using the Fulton County funds his law firm received. The DA authorizes his compensation according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. A spokesperson for Willis told ABC News their office will respond to the allegations through appropriate court filings. House Republicans sent a letter yesterday to Cassidy Hutchinson, a key witness for the January 6th committee. The letter asks Hutchinson to save and share all records and materials she has about the events on January 6th. Congressman Barry Loudermilk wants Hutchinson to provide a House committee with any documents, messages, or electronic information that may be connected to her statements about January 6th. Loudermilk wrote on X that Cassidy Hutchinson's substantial changes to her testimony are inconsistent with previous statements she's made publicly and to the former J6 Select Committee. The congressman specifically cited Hutchinson's June 2022 testimony he says she testified that former President Trump attempted to grab the steering wheel from a Secret Service employee driving the vehicle and lunged at another. But Loudermilk says she did not mention this interaction in her previous three transcribed interviews in February, March and May 2022. Was accountability upheld in Dr. Anthony Fauci's testimony yesterday? The House Select Committee on the Coronavirus Pandemic heard him answer questions for seven hours in a closed-door hearing. For analysis of the proceedings, we are joined by civil rights lawyer and fellow at the Brownstone Institute, Bobby Ann Cox. She's best known for her legal victory against New York Governor Kathy Hochul's controversial quarantine camps. Thank you so much for joining us, Bobby Ann. What did we learn from Dr. Fauci's testimony yesterday? Yes, well, um, apparently, according to the chairman of the subcommittee, uh, who, who's leading the investigation and the questioning, um, Anthony Fauci was, was not, his memory was not working very well. Uh, apparently, he uh, said he, doesn't, he didn't recall uh, over 100 times in that six-hour interview. Um, but what they did get out of him was that uh, he, he was admitting that he does oversee and or did oversee and sign off on all of the grants that the United States government uh, was funding, whether they were within our country or outside our country, um, but that he, which would have included the Wuhan lab in China, uh, but that he didn't actually read through all of those proposals before he would sign off on them. Um, so that is a huge problem. That is a huge problem because then we don't know if he was actually approving what was going on and it, it makes it seem like he didn't actually know what was going on whether it was grants that were given out to labs within our country or grants that were given out to labs outside our country um, and that is extremely dangerous and uh, the american people should be very concerned about that it, it says what kind of oversight is is the head of a very important national organization uh, an agency within our government that they don't know what's going on inside their own walls. It's very concerning. Bobby Ann, did he explain why he didn't review them? Um, to my knowledge, that that was not asked. The problem is that this hearing yesterday and again today is going on behind closed doors. Um, so the public, there are no, no TV cameras. The public is not seeing this live. Uh, we are relying on what is coming out in reports afterwards uh, from the members of the committee. Um, as I understand it, yesterday, um, Dr. Fauci would not talk to reporters, uh, either on his way in or on his way out. 
Um, and so we, the information we are getting as to what questions were asked and what his answers were um, are all coming from the members of the subcommittee. Uh, so as of right now, we don't have transcripts, we don't have television or videos, so we don't know exactly uh, what the questions were and the answers that were given. And before the hearing, he brought four lawyers with him. Uh, is this common practice during a congressional testimony? Uh, to my knowledge, no. You typically don't bring uh, a whole entourage of attorneys with you. Um, certainly, it, it shows in my mind, it shows that he is concerned uh, about something he might say uh, to incriminate himself, uh, get himself into some further trouble. So um, yeah, it, it is not something you typically see that, that somebody who uh, was a former government uh, employee uh, running one of our major agencies uh, goes into a hearing with uh, you know, a handful of attorneys around him. Um, you know, it, it also, when you're being questioned like that and you have all these attorneys around you, um, you know, it, it does damper the things that you're saying. Um, and it also, they might stop you point blank from answering a question altogether. Yeah. Um, so it is a little concerning that he felt that he needed to have a handful of attorneys with him to go in and speak to this subcommittee. Now, what was missing, in your opinion, from yesterday's hearing uh, that you'd like addressed in day two? Yeah, so I feel like yesterday's hearing really focused on um, whether or not Dr. Fauci knew what these grants that he was handing out or signing off on were covering and um, the Wuhan lab leak and all of this. I would really like to see today some questions going on about his policies regarding masks uh, and his policies regarding lockdowns, uh, because those are two things that had proven to be devastating to Americans. Um, the lockdowns were absolutely devastating to especially small businesses, um, but also to students. Our children lost over a year, closer to two years of schooling because of those lockdowns, uh, depending on which state you're in and what part of the country you're in. And that is devastating and our children are still trying to catch up today. Um, and then the masking was extremely harmful as well. Um, you know, we have a, a whole category of children today uh, that are having problems with reading yeah. and speech and writing because of those lockdowns, which is something that Dr. Fauci was promoting and insisting upon at some points in time. So um, I would like to see more questions today being focused around his policy decisions regarding yeah. the masking and uh, also regarding the lockdowns. All right, Bobby Ann Cox, civil rights lawyer and fellow at the Brownstone Institute. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, thank you for having me. Could the winter weather affect the Iowa caucuses on January 15th? With nearly a foot of snow falling since Monday in some parts of the state, some say it could. Iowa State University professor Max Shelley discusses that possible scenario. The threatening weather has already affected campaigning for Iowa's January 15th precinct caucuses. The snow is expected to be followed by frigid temperatures that could fall below zero by caucus day next week. It forced former President Trump's campaign to cancel multiple appearances by Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders and her father, former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee. The pair were scheduled to court Iowa voters on Trump's behalf yesterday. A top Democrat says removing former President Donald Trump from state primary ballots is a bad move. 
Congressman Dean Phillips is a Democratic presidential candidate. He says voters should judge President Trump, not the courts. And I think it's better for our country, all of you, all of us on this stage and elsewhere to mobilize to defeat him. That's why I'm running for president, because right now Joe Biden is a risk to democracy because he is knowingly going into an election in which his approval numbers and his poll numbers make it almost impossible for him to win. Dean says he's very concerned about America's future if Trump is removed from the ballot. He believes violence will follow. The Minnesota congressman was referring to the recent agreement by the Supreme Court to review the argument that President Trump is not eligible to run for president again. That argument claims he violated the Constitution by allegedly inciting an insurrection to block the 2020 election. The Democratic Party has a plan to win control of the U.S. House in November. The aim is to spend at least $35 million to mobilize racial minor minorities, including Latino, Black, and Asian American voters. Democrats made the announcement today, as reported by NBC. The initiative is named Power the People. The letters in the word power stand for persuade, organize, welcome, educate, and reach. Democrats have traditionally received strong support from minority communities, but the GOP has made inroads in recent elections, particularly in Lat Latino and Asian American communities. Some recent polls also indicate declining enthusiasm among black voters for President Biden's campaign. An election date is set to fill former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's House seat. California Governor Gavin Newsom yesterday set a March 19th special election date for McCarthy's vacated spot. No candidate wins a majority vote. The top two vote-getters will advance to a May 21st matchup to fill the seat. The solidly Republican 20th Congressional District is anchored in Bakersfield, California. The seat is expected to stay in GOP hands. McCarthy announced in early December that he would step down two months after his historic ouster as House Speaker. McCarthy is the only Speaker in history to be voted out of the job. Coming up, millions of Americans may lose internet access or face higher internet prices as early as April. And the man who attacked a Las Vegas judge last week was back in court. He faced sentencing from the very judge he assaulted. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. The march to the U.S. continues for a caravan of migrants. About 2,000 migrants resumed their journey yesterday through southern Mexico. This after failing to receive the documents they say the Mexican government had promised them. The original caravan of about 6,000 migrants from Venezuela, Cuba and Central America set off on Christmas Eve with the goal of reaching the U.S. border. But after New Year's Day, they say the Mexican government convinced them to forego their march, promising to give them some unspecified documents. The migrants were seeking transit or exit visas they hope would allow them to take buses or trains to the U.S. border. But the papers they received do not allow them to leave the southern state of Chiapas, which sits along the Guatemala border. A Republican lawmaker is calling for the firing of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Congressman Matt Rosendale says he plans to file articles of impeachment against the Defense Secretary for high crimes and misdemeanors. The move comes as the aftermath regarding the delayed information from the Pentagon about Austin being in the hospital last week continues to unfold. 
Rosendale shared a statement on X saying Secretary Austin has violated his oath of office time and time again and has jeopardized the lives of the American people. Rosendale brought up occasions where he feels Austin endangered Americans. He mentioned the Chinese spy balloon incident, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and allowing what he called unvetted migrants to flow into the U.S. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley also weighed in on the controversy surrounding Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin during a Fox News town hall in Iowa. I think Biden should be fired. This is unbelievable. First, I have a problem with the fact that Biden's not talking to his secretary of defense every single day anyway. Secondly, is there not enough connection that he didn't even know he was put in the hospital? Haley called into doubt the effectiveness of Biden's communication with the military and compared it to her time as South Carolina governor. Haley says she spoke to her chief administrative officer in the military every day as governor. The presidential candidate also listed a bunch of recent crises that could have affected U.S. security. She mentioned the wars in Israel and Ukraine, as well as North Korea testing a missile that can reach the United States. Haley said that China is also doing things the U.S. needs to pay attention to. Regarding Austin's reporting delay, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said he doesn't expect there to be any consequences. Kirby said yesterday there are no plans to fire Austin from his job and added that the defense secretary has been demonstrating leadership. Austin said Saturday that he understood media concerns about transparency and committed to doing better in the future. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel today to discuss the next phase of the war. The top diplomat met with Prime Minister Netanyahu and his war cabinet to talk about Israel's efforts to protect and aid civilians in Gaza. Blinken said he was coming to Israel with promises from four Arab nations and Turkey to help in rebuilding Gaza after the war, but the nations want to see an end to the fighting and steps towards the creation of a Palestinian state alongside Israel. U.S. officials have called for the Palestinian Authority to govern Gaza after the war. Israel, Israeli leaders reject that idea, but haven't put up a concrete plan yet. Blinken is also trying to prevent an all-out war between Israel and the Iran-backed terrorist group Hezbollah in Lebanon. America's worst ally, that's what Andrews Kor, who is the principal at Core Analytics, calls the country of Turkey. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken just made Turkey his first stop on the current trip to the Middle East. I spoke with Kor about his claim and the role Turkey plays in the current Middle East conflict. Andrews Kor, thank you for joining us again. How does Turkey fit into the complex mix of characters entangled in the Israel-Hamas war? Turkey, unfortunately, uh, hosts a Hamas office in uh, Turkey. Turkey allows Hamas to operate openly in Turkey, uh, despite the fact that it's a recognized terrorist group um, in the United States and Europe. So uh, in terms of the Israel-Gaza war, Turkey is very, very unhelpful. And Turkey arrested 33 individuals with links to Israeli intelligence just recently. Can you talk about that? Israel is looking to capture, kill Hamas leaders wherever they are in the world, which I believe is the right thing to do. Uh, Hamas is a terrorist organization. Uh, no country should be harboring Hamas terrorists. It's kind of like the Taliban harboring al-Qaeda terrorists. 
Uh, after 9-11, obviously, the U.S. had to go in and capture those al-Qaeda terrorists when the Taliban uh, didn't let us do so um, and said they were going to host them, harbor them. Um, we led an invasion into the country. So that's exactly what Israel is doing now with Turkey. Turkey should know better as a NATO member um, not to harbor terrorists, uh, yet uh, still they do so. And you've called Turkey America's worst ally. You've sort of touched on this a little bit already, but can you expand on that? Turkey under uh, Erdogan is just quite uh, unpredictable, uncooperative with uh, NATO allies. I think there's a real question out there as to whether Turkey should even be a member of NATO. Uh, the fact that they're you trying to use every little thing uh, to leverage um, concessions uh, makes them clearly uh, a problem child in terms of uh, the alliance. Uh, and so, you know, it creates these, these issues. For example, uh, Israel needing to have intelligence agents in Turkey to capture terrorists that Turkey itself should be capturing. Now, despite all this that we're talking about, um, the U.S. still sends Turkey millions of dollars worth of weapons. Why does the U.S. continue the support? It may be that the weapons are being sold to Turkey. Um, and so, obviously, I mean, we want our allies like Turkey and other countries to be, uh, you know, to be to buy U.S. weapons that is part of being a, a good alliance member is buying U.S. weapons. So it's, in a way, it's it's good for both sides that we're selling these weapons. However, Turkey is far too close to uh, Russia and China, and we're worried about some of that technology falling into enemy hands, especially uh, the F-16 fighter jet, the F-35 fighter jet. Uh, we're definitely not even negotiating at this point about the F-35, but, um, Ankara is really trying to leverage Sweden's admission to NATO to get those F-16s. And the I think that the negotiating is going down to the wire because there's been no announcement in the last couple of days about whether uh, Turkey will actually get those F-16s or not. All right, Andrews Kaur, thank you so much. Thank you. Boeing's 737 MAX problems just got a little worse after the blowout of part of a plane's fuselage during a flight last week. Regulators grounded over 170 MAX 9 planes after a gaping hole appeared in the side of an Alaska Airlines plane Friday night. The panel that came off is known as a door plug. It's used to replace an emergency exit to add more seats. Alaska Airlines is now facing some scrutiny for its decision to keep the plane in operation, despite cabin system warnings in the days leading up to the incident. Both United and Alaska found loose bolts on multiple aircraft on multiple grounded MAX 9s in preliminary investigations. Federal investigators say they're still looking for more bolts. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the findings. Federal investigators are gaining new insight into how a door panel came loose before flying off an Alaska Airlines jetliner Friday night. All 12 stops became disengaged, allowing it to blow out of the fuselage. Uh, we found that both guide tracks on the plug were fractured. 
The National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, says they still haven't found four bolts that secure the panel, or if they were even there in the first place. That restrain it from its vertical movement, and we have not yet determined if they existed there. That will be determined when we take the plug to our lab in Washington, D.C. The nation's top accident investigator says warning lights were triggered on three flights before the blowout, including each of the two days before its first flight. NTSB Chair Jennifer Homendy says maintenance crews cleared the Alaska Airlines flight to fly after checks, but that Alaska decided not to use it on an ocean route to Hawaii in case the warning light reappeared. None of the 170 passengers or six crew members were injured, but passengers described confusion and chaos with a two-by-four-foot hole suddenly in the side of the plane just minutes into the flight. One says she heard a loud boom, followed by wind and oxygen masks dropping. At first she said it wasn't clear how close disaster was, until a teenager jumped into the seat beside her, shirtless and scratched. I didn't know why he didn't have a shirt on, because he, he, his shirt got sucked off of his body when the panel blew out. It was too loud to talk, so they communicated by text. She says the boy told her he was okay, and thanked her for her kindness. The NTSB said the lost door plug was found Sunday near Portland, in the backyard of a home. Authorities asked residents to keep a lookout for any evidence. I thought, oh my goodness, people have been looking for this all weekend, and it looks like it's in my backyard. High school physics teacher Bob Sarr says the seven agents that came to pick up the panel were amazed it was intact. He believes his trees broke its fall. And in my uh, physics A class, we've just finished talking about impulse and momentum. The trees acted like, a, like an airbag. Only seven seats were unoccupied on the flight, including two closest to the blown-out hole. The FAA grounded all MAX 9s operated by Alaska and United Airlines for inspection after the blowout. The FAA approved inspection and repair guidelines for MAX 9 plugs on Monday, which could streamline the roughly 170 grounded planes returned to service. Indonesia temporarily grounded three Boeing 737 MAX 9s operated by Lion Air in response. The planes use an emergency exit instead of a door plug. A Lion Air MAX plane crashed in Indonesia in 2018, killing all 190 people on board. An Ethiopian Airlines MAX 8 crashed in 2019, killing 157 people. Boeing shares dropped over 6% Monday. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And a driver is in custody after a vehicle crashed into a gate at the White House complex yesterday evening. The Secret Service is investigating the incident. No one was hurt in the crash. Roads in the area were initially closed to traffic in response to the incident. The White House did not immediately respond to a request for comment. President Biden was not at the White House. He was en route from South Carolina to Texas at the time. A Delaware man was charged last month with drunk driving after he accidentally crashed his vehicle into President Biden's motorcade. Fire officials suspect a gas leak, what leak was the cause of a blast at a Texas hotel in Fort Worth. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on yesterday's explosion, which injured 21 people. The explosion at the Sandman Signature Hotel blew out windows and littered downtown streets with large sections of debris from the building. Officials say one of the injured people is in critical condition. The blast flung doors and entire sections of wall onto the road in front of the 20-story hotel. Fort Worth Fire Department rescue crews found several people trapped in the basement. More than two dozen rooms were occupied at the hotel when the blast took place. Authorities say a restaurant in the building had been under construction, but it was not definitive that is where the blast occurred. The Sandman Signature Hotel is in a busy area of downtown, about one block from the Fort Worth Convention Center. 
According to its website, the hotel has 245 rooms and was built in 1920 as the Wagoner Building, named after cattle rancher and oilman William Thomas Wagoner. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Deobra Redden, the convicted felon who attacked a Las Vegas judge last week, appeared back in court on Monday. The judge he had attacked sentenced him to 19 to 48 months in prison for his previous case. The judge said she was not changing or modifying the sentence she was imposing when she was attacked. Redden attacked Clark County Judge Mary Kay Holthus last Wednesday when she was about to hand down his sentence. He ran up to the bench and jumped over furniture to assault her. The dramatic video showed the expression on the judge's face as Redden quickly approached it. It also showed court personnel trying to detain Redden as he yelled expletives and hurled punches before being dragged away. Moments before the attack, Redden was asking the judge for leniency. He said he was suffering from mental illness but was getting back on track and claimed that he did not deserve jail time. Coming up, Moscow court has detained a U.S. citizen on criminal charges. Find out what's behind the imprisonment of another American. An emergency alert ripping through Taiwan. See how the island responds to China launching a satellite five days before Taiwan's presidential election. We'll have the details soon when we return. A new rule for the gig, U.S. gig economy. The Biden administration plans to announce the rule as soon as this week. It will make it harder for companies to classify workers as independent contractors instead of employees. Joining us live to discuss is NTD business host Don Ma. Tell us more about this rule, Don. Sure. So first of all, let me mention that this rule could be a potential game changer for millions of gig workers uh, in the U.S. Uh, so basically, this rule aims to lay out clearer standards for company uh, for companies to uh, whether they should consider a worker as an employee or a contractor. Uh, now, currently, uh, companies can classify workers as contractors simply if they uh, work or handle their own profits and losses or have control over their own work. Uh, now, the proposed Biden administration rule uh, aims to tighten these criteria. So under the new rule, there are a number of things to consider. Uh, and one of them is the duration of employment. So that means, um, is the position going to a worker temporary or ongoing? Um, are you, for example, just hiring somebody for a couple of weeks uh, for, for a holiday season shopping rush or because somebody else is on vacation? Um, and another point besides this rule is uh, whether the work, worker is essential to your business. So, for example, if you're a barber shop, that means uh, your hairdressers, they are essential to your business. And uh, if, if that's the case, then you under this new rule, you may have to consider uh, whether uh, you should consider the worker as uh, employee instead of a contractor. And this change so makes it more challenging for businesses to classify workers as contractors rather than employees. And the point of doing this from the Biden administration's perspective is that, you know, when you can classify someone as a contractor, that means 
you don't have to pay them minimum wage and uh, you don't have to give them uh, other benefits that come along with being an employee. Uh, so this is what the administration wants to get rid of with this rule. But it's worth pointing out that companies uh, are legally required to pay into Social Security, Medicare and unemployment for workers designated as employees, but they don't have to if the worker is a contractor. So then what are the pros and cons here? Right, uh, a, a range of uh, industries uh, will be affected by this rule and getting the most attention to no surprise is app-based services that heavily rely on contract workers. So for example, Uber, uh, Lyft, uh, you have um, similar services like DoorDash as well. And the Labor Department has previously, previously said that misclassifying workers as independent contractors uh, denies these workers uh, protections under federal labor standards, and it could lead to wage theft and potentially allow certain employers to gain an unfair advantage over other businesses. So these are all the things that the rule aims to tackle, uh, which is a good thing, right? But there's also a downside to this, um, which is a classification to employees could essentially throw some businesses and their business model completely upside down. Uh, not to mention that the rule will likely decrease flexibility for some workers, uh, resulting in lost opportunities potentially to earn money. Um, because right now, a contractor status lets uh, companies like Uber uh, offer a lot of flexibility and choice to their workers. Uh, sometimes workers can actually um, accept other gigs from other competing companies. So if you're a Uber driver, you can actually accept work from uh, Lyft as well, and they can work on their own schedule. Um, and other than that, let me just point out a few more. Uh, independent contractors reclassified as employees could potentially pay more in taxes as well, and the rule could drive up costs for services uh, for consumers like you and me, because uh, when a business is forced to provide insurance and pension plans and paid vacations, sick leave, all these things, they could add cost for the company and it could potentially pass it on to consumers. And what other business news do you have for us, Don? Sure, just a quick update uh, on uh, millions of Americans losing potentially internet access or facing potentially higher rates as early as April. This could be the case if Congress does not act quickly to approve more funding for the approval, uh, Affordable Connectivity Program. Now, this program gives qualified low-income households a monthly discount on internet, and nearly 23 million households nationwide currently use the benefit. The FCC chairwoman wrote to U.S. lawmakers on Monday saying that participating internet providers may soon cut off service to households when existing funding for the program runs out. All right. Thank you, Don. Thank you. And a U.S. citizen is detained in Moscow on drug-related charges. That's according to an official statement released by a Moscow court today. Russian authorities accuse Robert Woodland of preparing to get involved in illegal drug trafficking. A Moscow court said the man will be held for two months as a preventive measure. The pro-Kremlin paper said Woodland is a U.S. citizen of Russian origin adopted by U.S. scientists. There have been several high-profile detentions of U.S. citizens recently. This includes Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, who the U.S. considers wrongfully detained. 
As the war with Russia drags on, Ukraine is looking at possible changes to its army mobilization rules to enable Kyiv to call up more fighters and get tougher on draft evasion. Let's take a look at what the proposals involve. Ukraine declared martial law in February 2022 when Russia invaded and began mobilizing civilians into the army. There was an influx of volunteer fighters at the start, but the numbers have since dwindled. Last month, President Volodymyr Zelensky said the military had proposed mobilizing up to half a million more people. This is a very serious number, and I said that I need more arguments to support this idea. This is a question about people, about justice, about defense capabilities, and a financial question. To beef up reserves, the proposed bill suggests lowering the mobilization age for combat duty from 27 to 25. It's also sparked controversy with tough penalties on draft dodgers. They could face restrictions on property transactions and be banned from traveling abroad or driving. They could also be denied loans and state services. A separate draft bill proposes sharply raising fines for those who flout the mobilization law and prison terms of up to five years for those who refuse military medical examinations. Another change is to go digital. The proposal wants to let draft officers call up people by email or some other electronic platform instead of issuing call-up papers in person or sending them to people's homes. Right now, the military can't call up those who live abroad. The bill proposes tracking Ukrainians living overseas and requiring them to have up-to-date military registration. If it becomes law, consular services such as the issue of passports would require citizens to present their military registration documents. One proposal close to families' hearts is demobilization, since there's no time limit on wartime military service now. The bill suggests discharging soldiers who have served for 36 straight months during martial law, though the army chief has said this will only be possible if there is no escalation on the battlefield and Ukraine has enough reserves ready by 2025 to replace troops. Before any of these changes can come into effect, they have to be approved by parliament and signed off by Zelensky. The proposals have faced criticism from the public and some politicians, with Parliament's Human Rights Commissioner saying some of them are unconstitutional. The front-runner in the upcoming Taiwan election giving his stance on cross-strait relations. Candidate William Lai saying on Tuesday that he would keep Taiwan's status quo if he gets elected. He's added he's also open to engaging with Beijing as dialogue can lower risks. Accepting Beijing's one-China principle is not true peace. Without legitimate sovereignty, it's a false peace, just like in Hong Kong. Therefore, our stance is to establish the power of rules. Beijing sees Taiwan as part of China. That's despite never having ruled the island. The communist regime has also vowed to take the island under control by force if necessary. Now all eyes are on the upcoming vote. It's set to decide how Taiwan handles future relations with China. What are the candidates' stances on relations with Beijing? Here's a breakdown. Leading the race is Taiwan's current Vice President William Lai. He represents the ruling Democratic Progressive Party. Throughout his career, Lai has been known for his staunch defense of the island's sovereignty, despite repeated pressure from the communist regime. The next candidate in line is Ho Yo-yi, mayor of New Taipei City and a former police chief. 
He opposes Taiwan's independence and has avoided speaking out about China. Trailing behind him is Ke Wenzhe, the former mayor of Taipei. He said that he believes Beijing remains a problem and that problem needs to be taken care of with, without sparking conflicts. An emergency alert rippling through Taiwan today, China launching a satellite over Taiwan's airspace five days before the island's all-important presidential election. The alert disrupted Taiwan's foreign minister's press conference. The PRC has fired a satellite in this region. Beijing has been ramping up pressure on Taiwan. Two weeks before the election, Chinese leader Xi Jinping vowed to reunify the island. Beijing uses terms like sovereignty and reunify to describe its view of Taiwan. She made the remark while commemorating the birth of Mao Zedong. Mao established today's communist China in 1949. His army expelled China's then-ruling power, which fled to today's Taiwan. Back to the emergency alert, Foreign Minister Joseph Wu said it's part of Beijing's gray zone tactics. To remind the Taiwanese people that the threat is there, uh, I think this is something that we have been coping with for a long time. And I think for the uh, Taiwanese government, our military stands ready uh, to deal with any kind of emergency. Wu called on the Taiwanese people to remain calm and vote their preferred candidates as planned. And in more China news, how big would the cost be if China invaded Taiwan? The island turns out the world's most advanced ships, sits next to a major shipping lane, and is critical to the security of the United States. A new report calculates the price tag coming up from tonight at 9.30 Eastern on NTD's China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer. Coming up, a new museum opens in Melbourne, Australia after 10 years of work. The exhibits honor survivors of one of the most heinous atrocities in world history. And Shen Yun Performing Arts wraps up their shows in San Francisco. Theatergoers say it's very powerful. Find out more after the break. Welcome back. Ten years in the making, the Melbourne Holocaust Museum finally opened its doors in Australia. The exhibits honor survivors of one of the most heinous atrocities in world history. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on the new institution and the lessons still relevant today. This is the Melbourne Holocaust Museum. Thanks to survivors like 99-year-old Abram Goldberg, the world will never forget. He still remembers his mother's last words in 1944 at the Auschwitz concentration camp. Abram, you should do whatever humanly possible to survive. And when you will survive, wherever you will find yourself, you should tell the world and the people of the world what actually happened to us. Visitors can read and see 1,300 survivor testimonies and 12,000 historical artifacts. Various exhibits depict Jewish life before the war started. It is what I dedicated my, my life, and I'm sure my mother will be proud. The museum then takes visitors through the horrors of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. The exhibition ends with the post-war survivors' tales of triumph. It's an overwhelming feeling of pride in what we've been able to achieve to carry these survivor stories forward. Nazi Germany may be an evil of the past, but anti-Semitism remains a threat. For Goldberg, this message is all the more important today. Racism, anti-Semitism is rising there. 
rising to ugly heads again. And I'm still fighting. And I've, it's the last day of my life. Goldberg shares what keeps him going, despite the horrors he lived through. Not every day in your life is going to be a sunny day. There will be days what will be overcast. But always remember, after an overcast day, the sun will always shine again. And this was my motto after the war. These exhibitions provide a picture of the past. The lessons learned here will ensure that future generations understand the meaning of never again. Andrew Thomas, NTT News. And next up, Shen Yun, the world's premier classical Chinese dance company, brings a lost culture to life through art. Here's a look at what theatergoers said about the show. Shen Yun Performing Arts took the stage at the San Francisco Opera House this past weekend. Locals share their experiences. It's amazing uh, as a part of the performance of the dancer. Uh, very well done, the choreography, uh, their performance, uh, the way they dance, uh, the, the way they organize it uh, is uh, very well done and a very high value show. We were very, very impressed with the breadth of scope, um, the everything from modern day stories uh, to ones from thousands of years ago to ones from rural China. Uh, so we thought it was all very imaginative. Shen Yun portrays China before communism. The New York-based company's mission is to revive genuine traditional culture through music and dance. It was just a wonderful cultural display of China's greatness before, unfortunately, the dark ages of communism. We were just thrilled to see such a fantastic display of artistry, uh, coordination, balance, and storytelling. It's something that can capture the audience and it can really make it so we we are part of a story, we're a part of an adventure, but we are also part of an emotional history that cannot be erased by a regime or by a peoples. It's very, very powerful. Many say it's more than just a performance. Very happy that Shen Yun has so many you know, performances around the world to share that message of hope. I think the name of the show, I think that what it was uh, divine and movement, and there was a huge message of hope. NTD News, California. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Oral arguments begin in a D.C. court on former President Trump's federal election case. What are Trump's lawyers arguing? We have the latest updates. House Republicans are challenging the testimony of a key January 6th witness. Find out what part of her testimony on former President Trump they're calling out and what action they're taking. Frigid and snowy winter weather could make participating in the Iowa caucuses challenging for some. We hear from a political science professor about how it could affect voters. The U.S. is making it easier for Chinese migrants to enter the country illegally. An investigative reporter tells us how, citing an internal email from Border Patrol. In college football, Michigan beats Washington for their first title since 1997. NTD's Dave Martin weighs in on the game. The annual CES Tech Show kicks off in Las Vegas. See what the next generation of TVs look like.
This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Former President Trump appearing in a Washington, D.C. courtroom today. A three-judge panel is hearing arguments about whether Trump is immune from prosecution for actions he took after the 2020 election. Trump entered the courtroom just before the oral arguments began. His lawyer argued that the actions mentioned in the indictment were part of Trump's official duties as the president. He said charging a president for his official conduct opens a Pandora's box from which the nation might never recover. Trump's attorney concluded by indicating that if Trump loses the legal battle, he will seek review by the full D.C. Circuit or ask the Supreme Court to step in. The special counsel team then opened by claiming that the president does not enjoy immunity after leaving office. In response, Trump's lawyer added that the current indictment didn't reference anything after Trump left office. This is the second major appeal of the DOJ's prosecution of Trump in D.C. The former president faces four felony charges in the federal election case brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Those include conspiring to defraud the United States and to obstruct an official proceeding. Trump has pleaded not guilty. A surprise filing accuses the Fulton County DA and a special prosecutor of having an improper relationship. The two are handling former President Trump's Georgia election case. The accusation comes from co-defendant Michael Roman, who seeks to have his indictment dismissed. The document alleges a romantic relationship between Willis and prosecutor Nathan Wade, who is a private attorney. It says Willis contracted Wade without the required approval by the county. The 127-page filing also alleges the pair profited significantly from this prosecution at the expense of taxpayers. The filing says Wade and the DA took lavish vacations and he paid for them using the Fulton County funds his law firm received. The DA authorizes his compensation according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. A spokesperson for Willis told ABC News their office will respond to the allegations through appropriate court filings. House Republicans sent a letter yesterday to Cassidy Hutchinson, a key witness for the January 6th committee. The letter asks Hutchinson to save and share all records and materials she has about the events on January 6th. Congressman Barry Loudermilk wants Hutchinson to provide a House committee with any documents, messages or electronic information that may be connected to her statements about January 6th. Loudermilk wrote on X that Cassidy Hutchinson's substantial changes to her testimony are inconsistent with previous statements she's made publicly and to the former J6 Select Committee. The congressman specifically cited Hutchinson's June 22nd testimony. He says she testified that former President Trump attempted to grab the steering wheel from a Secret Service employee driving the vehicle and lunged at another. But Loudermilk says she did not mention this interaction in her previous three transcribed interviews in February, March and May of 2022. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel today to discuss the next phase of the war. The top diplomat met with Prime Minister Netanyahu and his war cabinet to talk about Israel's efforts to protect and aid civilians in Gaza. Blinken said he was coming to Israel with promises from four Arab nations and Turkey to help in rebuilding Gaza after the war. But the nations want to see an end to the fighting and steps towards the creation of a Palestinian state alongside Israel. U.S. officials have called for the Palestinian Authority to govern Gaza after the war. Israeli leaders reject that idea but haven't put up a concrete plan yet. 
Blinken is also trying to prevent an all-out war between Israel and the Iran-backed terrorist group Hezbollah in Lebanon. And here live to discuss is a former special envoy for the Abraham Accords, Arye Lightstone. Arye, welcome. Do you think anything new will come from these talks? Uh, unfortunately not. When the U.S. is supposed to lead and does not lead, ultimately you wind up with just a cycle of conversation and conversation, but no direction. Right. So I also want to look at President Biden of what might be behind this. He said yesterday that uh, during a speech that he's quietly pushing Israel to significantly get out of Gaza. What are your thoughts on that? Well, he should loudly push on having all 133 hostages return, including six Americans. Once that happens, there can be a conversation about lots of different things that can happen. Just in the last 24 hours, Israel has buried another nine soldiers, uh, bright, young, enthusiastic members of their communities who risked their lives in order to bring these hostages back. There is no conversation that can happen in Gaza until Hamas surrenders and all of the hostages are returned. And why do you think uh, the U.S. has not taken this approach that you're describing? I think it's a little bit mind-boggling. I think there are two major issues. Number one, it's an election year. And anything that President Biden can do to try to make sure that this war does not expand, he's going to do. And ironically or paradoxically, the weaker you are, the more likely it is that the war will expand. He's trying appeasement as opposed to strength, which has never worked in the Middle East. And the second piece that he has over here is he has a base that believes that the default solution to the Middle East is the two-state solution. It did not work 40 years ago. It did not work 10 years ago. It did not work on October 7th. There's a need for creativity and new vision in the region, and they are using recycled talking points, which won't get anybody anywhere. Now, Israel is facing a genocide case in international court. Does that have the potential to halt Israel's actions in this war? It does not, because Israel is facing actual genocide on its borders. So it has a case in the courts that will have to be litigated, and I think Israel has a great degree of confidence that they will be able to execute their part of the trial correctly, but they know that the odds are stacked against them. Israel's odds have always been stacked against them. If you look at the UN, the percentage and the preponderance of conversations are about Israel's human rights and not about Iran and not about China and not about North Korea, et cetera, et cetera. Here is where the superpower relationship with the United States of America needs to earn its muscle. We, the United States of America, need to stand firmly and strongly with Israel because you know what? If we don't prevent what they are trying to do to Israel in the international courts, they will come after us, Americans, next. So this is really our battle, and it's a diplomatic battle. It's a battle that we must and should win. Is there anything else that you think, specific actions you think the U.S. should take on this front? On the diplomatic front, no. I think we stand strong and we stand very clearly. The, the elephant in the room that we still have not addressed is Iran is the cause of Hezbollah, of Hamas, of the Houthis. When this happens and we don't respond, the world is waiting to see what should happen. And until and when the United States of America responds forcefully, then everybody else is sort of sitting on the sidelines. It does not at all help that our Secretary of Defense was at a commission for a critical period of time while this was happening. And now the Allies' faith in us has to be even more shaken, which is disturbing. All right, Arya Lightstone, former special envoy for the Abraham Accords and author of Let My People Know. Thank you so much. Thank Coming up, are standardized tests like the SAT and the ACT fair? 
See how a New York Times opinion columnist argues in favor of them. And the IRS announces an official start date of the 2024 tax season. Learn what exceptions there are. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News Today. A top Democrat says removing former President Donald Trump from state primary ballots is a bad move. Congressman Dean Phillips is a Democratic presidential candidate. He says voters should judge President Trump, not the courts. And I think it's better for our country, all of you, all of us on this stage and elsewhere to mobilize to defeat him. That's why I'm running for president, because right now Joe Biden is a risk to democracy because he is knowingly going into an election in which his approval numbers and his poll numbers make it almost impossible for him to win. Dean says he's very concerned about America's future if Trump is removed from the ballot. He believes violence will follow. The Minnesota congressman was referring to the recent agreement by the Supreme Court to review the argument that President Trump is not eligible to run for president again. That argument claims he violated the Constitution by allegedly inciting an insurrection to block the 2020 election. The Democratic Party has a plan to win control of the U.S. House in November. The aim is to spend at least $35 million to mobilize racial minorities, including Latino, Black, and Asian American voters. Democrats made the announcement today, as reported by NBC. The initiative is named Power the People. The letters in the word power stand for persuade, organize, welcome, educate, and reach. Democrats have traditionally received strong support from minority communities, but the GOP has made inroads in recent elections, particularly in Latino and Asian American communities. Some recent polls also indicate declining enthusiasm among black voters for President Biden's campaign. An election date is still to fill former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's House seat. It's set for an, an upcoming date. California Governor Gavin Newsom yesterday set a March 19th special election date for McCarthy's vacated spot. If no candidate wins a majority vote, the top two vote-getters will advance to a May 21st matchup to fill the seat. The solidly Republican 20th Congressional District is anchored in Bakersfield, California. The seat is expected to stay in GOP hands. McCarthy announced in early December that he would step down two months after his historic ouster as House Speaker. McCarthy is the only speaker in history to be voted out of the job. And the march to the U.S. continues for a caravan of migrants. About 2,000 migrants resumed their journey yesterday through southern Mexico. This after failing to receive the documents they say the, gov the Mexican government promised them. The original caravan of about 6,000 migrants from Venezuela, Cuba and Central America set off on Christmas Eve with the goal of reaching the U.S. border. But after New Year's Day, they say the Mexican government convinced them to forego their march promising to give them some unspecified documents. The migrants were seeking transit or exit visas they hoped would allow them to take buses or trains to the U.S. border, but the papers they received do not allow them to leave the southern state of Chiapas, which sits along the Guatemalan border. A Republican lawmaker is calling for the firing of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Congressman Matt Rosendale says he plans to file articles of impeachment against the Defense Secretary for high crimes and misdemeanors. The move comes as the aftermath regarding the delayed information from the Pentagon about Austin being in the hospital last week continues to unfold. Rosendale shared a statement on X saying Secretary Austin has violated his oath of office time and time again and has jeopardized the lives of the American people. 
Rosendale brought up occasions where he feels Austin endangered Americans. He mentioned the Chinese spy balloon incident, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and allowing what he called unvetted migrants to flow into the U.S. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley also weighed in on the controversy surrounding Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin during a Fox News town hall in Iowa. I think Biden should be fired. This is unbelievable. First, I have a problem with the fact that Biden's not talking to his Secretary of Defense every single day anyway. Secondly, is there not enough connection that he didn't even know he was put in the hospital? Haley called into doubt the effectiveness of Biden's communication with the military and compared it to her time as South Carolina governor. Haley says she spoke to her chief administrative officer in the military every day as governor. The presidential candidate also listed a bunch of recent crises that could have affected U.S. security. She mentioned the wars in Israel and Ukraine, as well as North Korea testing a missile that can reach the United States. Haley said that China is also doing things the U.S. needs to pay attention to. Regarding Austin's reported delay, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said he doesn't expect there to be any consequences. Kirby said yesterday there are no plans to fire Austin from his job and added that the defense secretary has been demonstrating leadership. Austin said Saturday that he understood media concerns about transparency and committed to doing better in the future. Deober Redden, the convicted felon who attacked a Las Vegas judge last week, appeared back in court on Monday. The judge he had attacked sentenced him to 19 to 48 months in prison for his previous case. The judge said she was not changing or modifying the sentence she was imposing when she was attacked. I'm now making my calendar page from that day an exhibit for the court. Uh, it's the, as it existed the moment I walked in from prior to anything happening, nothing's been changed, uh, indicating the sentence I intended to impose. Redden attacked Clark County Judge Mary Kay Holthus last Wednesday when she was about to hand down his sentence. He ran up to the bench and jumped over furniture to assault her. The dramatic video showed the expression on the judge's face as Redden quickly approached. It also showed court personnel trying to detain Redden as he yelled expletives and hurled punches before being dragged away. Moments before the attack, Redden was asking the judge for leniency. He said he was suffering from mental illness but was getting back on track and claimed that he did not deserve jail time. A New York Times opinion columnist defended standardized testing in a recent editorial. Senior writer David Leonard calls criticism of the SAT and the ACT misguided. Progressives argue that standardized tests are biased against lower income black and Hispanic students. Data show that higher income white and Asian students tend to score higher. Critics conclude that standardized tests favor white and Asian students. Others argue that, S that tests like the SAT and the ACT don't paint a holistic picture of the applicants. Leonard says some university presidents disagree. Brown University President Christina Paxson wrote in June that test scores are a better indicator of student success than grades. Leonard also cites a recent academic study by nonprofit Opportunity Insights that found similar results. And early birds can get a jump start on their federal income taxes starting January 29th. That's when the IRS will start accepting tax returns for 2023. If you're not an early bird, there's plenty of time. You still have until April 15th to file. There are exceptions to that deadline. Taxpayers in Maine and Massachusetts have until April 17th to submit their returns. That's because those states observe the Patriots Day and Emancipation Day holidays. 
And anyone leaving, living or doing business in a federally declared disaster area may have a later date. For instance, if you are affected by the storms and tornadoes that started on December 9th in parts of Tennessee, you will have until June 17th to file and pay what you owe. Coming up, the U.S. is making it easier for Chinese migrants to enter the country illegally. An investigative reporter tells us how, citing an internal email from Border Patrol. An emergency alert ripping through Taiwan. See how the island responds to China launching a satellite five days before Taiwan's presidential election. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. Extreme temperatures and snowstorms are turning the first caucus state into a bitterly cold mess. They're impacting campaign events and the turnout for next Monday's caucuses is now in question. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao, who is in Iowa right now. Good afternoon to you, Iris. How are you and what's the condition like there? Looks cold. <laughs> Good afternoon to both of you. So we're here actually stuck in a city called Oskaloosa. We're about an hour away from Des Moines, which was where we were supposed to go back to late last night after covering a campaign event by Casey DeSantis. We tried driving back for about an hour, but the snowstorm was just getting worse and worse. Our car skidded it twice on the way, so we kind of just gave up and chose to stay here at a hotel. And we're definitely not the only ones impacted here as snow already fell in central Iowa for about 9 to 10 inches and as you can see it's still continuing to fall. Nikki Haley had to cancel her only campaign event yesterday morning and Trump's campaign also had to cancel several events by his surrogates including one tonight which was supposed to be featuring former acting attorney general Matt Whitaker. Meanwhile Vivek Ramaswamy made it to all his campaign events yesterday despite the snow. He posted on X around 3 a.m this morning saying that he did, they just got about got back to Des Moines after a five hours drive in the snow their SUV got stuck in a snow ditch you had to go out the car and basically push the car out so that was you know you can imagine how bad the snow was but Three hours later, despite Ramaswamy promising that he's going to make it to all his seven campaign events today, three hours later at 6 o'clock this morning, he posted again saying that it had to cancel some of them because of the snow, which is impossible to get there safely. And all this is happening as, of course, we're anticipating an uncertain turnout next Monday, which is caucus day here in Iowa. So over the weekend, starting on Saturday, the temperature is going to plunge to below zero in the lows. And during the daytime highs, it's only in single digits. So we can imagine how cold it's going to get. While all the candidates, including Trump, Ramaswamy and DeSantis, are all boasting that their voters, their supporters are loyal and motivated enough to come out during the snow or the cold temperature to still vote for them. But it's still uncertain, really. It remains to be seen how many voters will actually come out to actually cast their vote next Monday when the temperature plunge, and of course, in this snow ongoing. Back to you. All right. Thank you, Iris. Looks cold out there. And a tweak in U.S. border policy last year now coming to light. The screening process for illegal Chinese immigrants coming through the southern border was made easier last April. That's according to an internal email obtained by the Daily Caller. Here's what Philip Lenzicki, the investigative reporter who broke the story, had to say. 
So back in April 2023, an email was apparently sent uh, from Customs and Border Protection to approximately 500 agents. And this email uh, directed agents to uh, more or less drastically reduce the number of questions that they would be asking uh, Chinese illegal immigrants. Authorities cut the questions down from 40 to 5. The remaining questions include where they were born and whether they are a member of the Chinese Communist Party. The change would also remove another requirement. To perform something called phone downloads, um, which is when they uh, confiscate a uh, illegal immigrant's phone and uh, plug it into a machine in order to cross-reference its data against a database containing known terrorist organizations and other um, malign entities. The change follows a surge in illegal Chinese crossings at the border. Experts told the New York Post while the change could speed up the screening process, bad actors could slip through the cracks. Before the change, Border Patrol agents saw over 3,500 illegal Chinese crossers per month. After the email was sent out, that number saw a 50% spike over the following eight months. Last year saw a massive surge in the number of illegal Chinese immigrants coming through the border, totaling 800%. Over 18,000 Chinese people illegally crossed into the U.S. through the southern border in 2023, compared to a little over 2,000 last year and around 400 in 2021. Lawmakers said over 90% of 2023 illegal border crossers are single adults. Five U.S. senators penned a letter to the head of Homeland Security last year urging him to take immediate action. They described the situation as a rising threat. NTD reached out to Customs and Border Protection for comment but did not hear back before airtime. The front-runner in the upcoming Taiwan election giving his stance on cross-strait relations. Candidate William Lai saying on Tuesday that he would keep Taiwan's status quo if he gets elected. He added he's also open to engaging with Beijing as dialogue can lower risks. Accepting Beijing's one-China principle is not true peace. Without legitimate sovereignty, it's a false peace, just like in Hong Kong. Therefore, our stance is to establish the power of rules. The regime sees Taiwan as part of China. That's despite never having ruled the island. Beijing has also vowed to take the island under control by force if necessary. Now, all eyes are on the upcoming vote. It's set to decide how Taiwan handles future relations with China. What are the candidates' stances on relations with Beijing? Here's a breakdown. Leading the race is Taiwan's current vice president, William Lai. He represents the ruling Democratic Progressive Party. Throughout his career, Lai has been known for his staunch defense of the island's sovereignty, despite repeated pressure from the communist regime. The next candidate in line is Ho Yo-i, mayor of New Taipei City and former police chief. He opposes Taiwan's independence and has avoided speaking out about China. Trailing behind him is Ke Wenzhe, the former mayor of Taipei. He said that he believes Beijing remains a problem and that problem needs to be taken care of without sparking conflicts. An emergency alert rippling through Taiwan today. China launching a satellite over Taiwan's airspace five days before the island's all-important presidential election. The alert disrupted Taiwan's foreign minister's press conference. 
the PRC has fired a satellite. Uh, has been ramping up pressure on Taiwan. Two weeks before the election, Chinese leader Xi Jinping vowed to reunify the island. Beijing uses terms like sovereignty and reunify to describe its views of Taiwan. Xi made the remark while commemorating the birth of Mao Zedong. Mao established today's communist China in 1949. His army expelled China's then-ruling power, which fled to today's Taiwan. Back to the emergency alert, Foreign Minister Joseph Wu said it's part of Beijing's gray zone tactics. To remind the Taiwanese people that the threat is there, uh, I think this is something that we have been coping with for a long time. And I think for the uh, Taiwanese government, our military stands ready uh, to deal with any kind of emergency. Wu called on the Taiwanese people to remain calm and vote their preferred candidates as planned. And in more China news, how big would be the cost if China did invade Taiwan? The island churns out the world's most advanced ships, sits next to a major shipping lane, and is critical to the security of the United States. A new report calculates the price tag. Coming up tonight at 9.30 Eastern on NTD's China In Focus with Tiffany Meyer. And as we watch the latest in Beijing's relations with Taiwan, there's a range of tensions with America's main adversary at home, too. Congressman Jake Letourneau of Kansas this week is calling on the Biden administration to investigate a company with ties to the Chinese communist regime. The company is planning to build a facility near several Midwest military sites. That's according to the Daily Caller. This amid a push from various states, Missouri the latest, to prevent foreign adversaries from owning land near military sites. Earlier, we spoke with economic and national security analyst Antonio Graceffo for his insights. Antonio Graceffo, what are the risks of CCP-tied firms buying property near U.S. military sites? Yes, this is a very disturbing uh, uh, incident that's occurring more frequently in the United States. We have CCP-backed entities buying land near military sites. They're able to surveil those sites. They're able to do, um, you know, reconnaissance, intelligence. They'll know what's going on, what's going in, what's going out, what sort of equipment, what sort of personnel. This is very disturbing. Yeah, and now Missouri's governor has just signed an executive order giving the state the right to limit farmland purchases by foreign adversaries near military sites. More states, as you mentioned, are taking action like this, but do we need more action at the federal level? We absolutely do. I mean, there should not be any foreign ownership allowed, or certainly not from threat countries such as China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. Uh, it, it just makes absolutely no sense that we're allowing the CCP to buy land near our military bases. And one of the reasons why they're buying farmland is because farms are very large, so it's able to justify buying a large uh, plot of land, and then in the middle of that land there might be some type of a computer facility that's used for surveillance. But because the farm is so large, then it's you know set far away from the road. It's difficult for law enforcement to see it and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, this needs to be stopped. And, and what kind of federal action do you think would be the most effective at countering these threats? Well, I think CFIUS is a good start, that CFIUS should then uh, investigate. And if there's any CCP tie, 
you know, these companies should not be allowed to uh, purchase land. But I, I really think it needs to go beyond that because I, I just keep saying that under the Chinese national intelligence law, this is so important, every citizen and every company is obligated to aid the CCP in intelligence gathering. This means that every Chinese entity matches the definition of a foreign agent under the U.S. Foreign Agent Registration Act. This means that these people should not be allowed to buy any land and their immigration, in other words, their, their access to the United States, visa issuance, should be restricted. And as mentioned earlier, a Republican lawmaker is now urging the Biden administration to investigate the CCP-tied firms building near a sensitive U.S. military site. Do you think there needs to be a broader investigation into the risks? You know, what sort of scope could we be looking at here? Oh, absolutely. This is this is the other problem with our system, which I'm proud of our system and I love our checks and balances and, and our protections of freedoms. But the way that it backfires on us is that they'll do an investigation into this one situation and then we have to uncover the next situation and then slowly build an investigation against that situation and so forth. What we really need is broad sweeping blanket restrictions on Chinese purchases of land in the United States. And finally, what do you think is in the way of, of that and how can we how can we move past it? Well, the biggest thing that's in the way is that we want to protect freedoms. We, we in the United States, we always have an idea that we would prefer that three criminals go free rather than that we would ever arrest one innocent person. But in the case of foreign nationals, I think that we need to recognize that U.S. citizens have certain rights that we want to protect, but this is not true. We don't owe these rights to foreign governments, particularly governments that mean us harm. So I see no problem with just making a blanket statement, blanket law. Uh, Chinese entities cannot buy land in the United States. It's full stop. All right, Antonio Graceffo, great to speak with you. Ecuadorian President Daniel Noboa has declared a state of emergency for 60 days. The decision yesterday came after the country's most wanted prisoner disappeared from jail on Sunday. Aldolfo Macias, known as Fido, is the leader of the Los Chaneros criminal gang. He disappeared from the prison where he was serving a 34-year sentence. Ecuador's prison agency said incidents occurred on Monday at six of the country's overcrowded prisons. The state of emergency is among the first big security tests for Naboa. The young businessman took office in November, promising to crack down on soaring levels of violence. The state of emergency deploys the military onto the streets and into prisons. The declaration also establishes a national night time curfew. Coming up in college football, Michigan is the national champion after beating Washington. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss the game. And the annual CES Tech Show kicks off in Las Vegas. See how the next generation of TVs looks more shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, Michigan won the College Football National Championship last night. They beat Washington 34-13. to That score makes it sound like it was a blowout. Was that the case? No, I didn't think it was so, although it looked like it was going to be early. I mean, th Michigan got three quick scores off their running plays. I think it was like 17-3 early on. But then Washington kind of stemmed the tide in the second quarter. They're, they got some stops. They made it a game by halftime, really. Somehow by the fourth quarter, it was just a seven-point game. But from there, Michigan kind of blew, blew it open, scoring a couple touchdowns late. And that was pretty much it. You know, unfortunately, it was kind of an ugly game, I would say. Washington star quarterback Michael Penix, he uncharacteristically, uncharacteristically missed some open receivers. 
All Grant, he was under pressure from Michigan's defense constantly and was banged up, I think, too. There were also some dropped passes. Washington really looked out of sync on offense. I think you can blame plenty of that on Michigan's defense. You know, pretty much every team had problems with their defense. Now, Dave, Michigan's sign-stealing scandal this season resulted in a suspension for their head coach, and some think it could taint his, this title. Do you agree with that? Well, I, I'm sure it'll be tainted in the minds of some. Because if the allegations are true, it definitely would have benefited their defense, and their defense was really their strong point. On the other hand, the assistant coach that was kind of at the center of this investigation resigned a couple of months ago. Uh, before they had to play all these difficult teams. I mean, since all, they, all this came out, they've beat Ohio State, Penn State, Alabama, and Washington, four top 10 teams. I mean, surely those teams would have changed their play calls knowing all this, uh, even with that assistant coach no, not being there. Now, although head coach Jim Harbaugh was suspended earlier this year, that was by the Big Ten. The NCAA's investigation is still ongoing, but since they have all the evidence, I'm sure they would be in best position to decide, you know, whether it's tainted or not and what they'll do about it. So we'll have to see what they come up with. And Dave, Michigan's coach Jim Harbaugh, like you're saying, has been answering questions about his future, like whether he'll leave for an NFL job. But do you think his winning a title would make him want to stay? You know, I go back and forth on this, although I can't think of the last time someone left right after winning a national championship. But Harbaugh has had a number of head coaching jobs, so he does have that reputation. I mean, before uh, this Michigan job, he was in the NFL, led the Niners to a couple of division titles, even a Super Bowl appearance in just four years. Before that, he was in the college ranks against, with San Diego and then Stanford, and he was successful at every stop. So I'm sure he gets offers all the time. I will point out, too, that this has been his longest head coaching job, nine years now at Michigan, and Michigan is his alma mater, so I'm sure there's some pull there. But sometimes I think winning a title makes you feel like you've accomplished your job, kind of, too. In any case, I'm sure NFL teams would gladly take him. I mean, he's one of the best out there. All right. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dave. Some of Australia's best Olympic athletes have come from indigenous First Nation communities. They rarely end up coaching at the highest level, though, but a new program is focusing on helping them make the transition. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. For field hockey star Shada on Casemiro, practice makes perfect. Now she's embarking on a new adventure. Not just playing on the field, but being behind the scenes and coaching and bringing them through the ranks. Casemiro is an Alice Springs Arunta woman. She's part of a group of 12 First Nation coaches across Australia learning to become an elite trainer. Some of Australia's best Olympians are leading the way. The first is around mentoring, but it's also actually changing the system to actually ensure they're welcomed. So you create the, the cultural awareness training, but also understanding what it means. In 2003, Johnson ran the 100 meter in 9.93 seconds, making him the fastest man in Australia today. More Indigenous instructors could increase participation in a variety of sports. There's not much Indigenous hockey players. Being out in the community um, now, we'll just get more um, people into the sports. The program lasts 18 months. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The annual CES Tech Show in Las Vegas kicks off today following two days of media previews. The event showcases the latest electronics and must-have devices. NTD's Andrew Thomas again reporting on the next generation of TVs for 2024. At CES in Las Vegas, TCL is presenting its enormous 115-inch LED TV. The new TV features a Dolby Atmos speaker system with a subwoofer. 
The Chinese tech company claims its TCL QM891G is the world's largest TV. What is enhanced for 2024? Because in the beginning, I said we're going to raise the bar, right? So first is better backlighting at every level, right? We have more brightness. We have new full array local dimming levels. And we have the high zone, high quality, premium QD mini LED. LG unveiled what it calls the world's first wireless transparent OLED TV. The 77-inch signature OLEDT is expected to launch sometime this year. We have some cool and unique experiences that we provide. As you can see, there's artwork behind me. Um, and then you can watch normal TV. Um, very cool how you can see the film go up and down, how you can see the TV transition from transparent mode to regular TV mode. Samsung showcased its latest AI-powered TV at the Las Vegas Tech Show. The Neo QLED 8K is powered by a new chip. The electronics giant claims that means the best picture it's ever produced. Samsung's AI screen is powered by on-device AI technology. On-device means fast data processing, a high level of privacy protection, and even reduce power consumption. Panasonic announced two new OLED TVs for 2024. The Z95A comes in 55-inch and 65-inch options. The Z93A is 77 inches. All three offer superior image and audio quality. The electronics company says the integration of Fire TV will revolutionize entertainment. We envision our TVs as portals of new territories, guiding you to explore the vast world of content and then immersing you deep into those experiences. In a sense, our aim is to, to empower you. CES runs until Friday, January 12th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And Justin, more on former President Trump's D.C. court hearing today. Judges heard arguments on whether Trump is immune from prosecution for actions taken after the 2020 election. His attorneys say Trump holds immunity because the Senate did not convict him on impeachment while in office. After the hearing, Trump reiterated his belief he was performing his duties as president. He said he thinks his legal team's arguments went well in court today. And I did nothing wrong, absolutely nothing wrong. I'm working for the country and I worked on uh, very hard on voter fraud because we have to have free elections. We have to have strong borders. We have to have free elections. Those two things, almost above all, a great argument. We have an argument where they conceded two major points today. In fact, I think it's probably a concession. You have to ask the lawyers, Todd, if you'd like to talk about it. But they conceded two points that I think were uh, by normal standards. If it weren't me, that would be the end of this case. But sometimes they look at me differently than they look upon others. And that's very bad for our country. Uh, we had a very big event the appeals court panel is expected to issue a quick ruling in the case after oral arguments. There is no set deadline, but it could come within days. And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.